Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Die Hard starring Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, Alexander Gudanov, and Bonnie Bedelia. Based on the book Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe, screenplay by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza, and directed by John McTiernan. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to wrap up another film review cask uh, this this week with a look from 1988, Die Hard. Just finished watching it in the other room there, and it, it's always just a joyous watch watching that film. Like it's, I always have a good time with it. That's one that you can just watch over and over. It never gets old. You can watch it at Christmas. You can watch it in the summer. Yeah. You can watch it at Halloween if you want. Yeah. There's always a time for Die Hard. I'm always just blown away by just like all the people like Reginald Vell Johnson, uh, Robert Dobby, Hart Bachner, all these uh, William Atherton coming back to playing another dick. Alexander Gudinov. Yeah. Yeah. There's just, it's just peppered with all these kind of players that all have a substantial world. Um, Paul Gleason. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to get right into Die Hard and everything. And today we're going to be having some more of the Yippee Kai Yay High West Whiskey. Very appropriate for today's episode. Cheers, Matt. To your Roy Rogers. <laughs> I'm kind of dressed like Roy Rogers today. <laughs> That's still good. It's the only thing McLean was missing in the building was some bourbon. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Well, let's get to our flight question. Hey, that'll work. You like Run DMC? Oh, you know it. Yeah, excellent. She's crafty. Excellent. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're interesting because it was, it was a, such a bridge between rock music and rap. That takes me back to such a different time, and that version of hip hop or rap is so wildly different than today. Oh yeah, um, mm-hmm. that's a whole podcast, and that's not this space. But uh, yeah, back to Run DMC and early Public Enemy. Oh yeah, and that, the Beastie Boys. That's and, good stuff. Uh, yeah, excellent. Yep. Talking about Bruce Willis uh, today uh, in his first real big starring vehicle, film wise. I mean, we'll talk about how a lot was kind of staked on him or put on his shoulders for this film. Uh, not really like leading man material or seen as action movie star and was met with a wide range of controversy and how much he was paid for this film that was kind of just banking on him. Not And, and, and he handles it masterfully. This isn't Willis's only really good role, but it did launch him into superstardom. Like one of the things I want to talk about is you can actually see like a movie star being born while watching this film. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, but let's kind of just talk about our top three favorite uh, Bruce Willis roles. There's so many. We'll leave McLean off the table because we're going to be talking about him a lot today. But why don't you start at number three? Going back at his filmography, even recently. It's really shocking to me how many really great roles he's had. It's mm-hmm. forgotten. I think as he's gotten a little bit older, the action hero stereo trope type has left him behind, as as it would naturally, because you have to have the body to pull it off. Mm-hmm. But in those those first 10 years, that is just one after another. But one of the ones that came to me is a little bit different. 
It's Hudson Hawk, isn't it? No. <laughs> but no. Okay. Um, it's a movie called Mortal Thoughts. Mm. It's the movie that he met Demi Moore on and where that um, ill-fated Orson Welles and Rita Hayward or Hayworth uh, like whirlwind marriage began. It's kind of a neo-noir and it's told in flashback sequences from Demi Moore's point of view. Mm. And in that movie, he plays Jimmy Urbanski. It's a little sleepy and a lot of people didn't see it. And it's, it was marketed like crap, honestly. But I would recommend checking it out. It's it's not the best movie that you're ever that you've never seen, but he's really good in it, and it's it's delivered very interestingly. I'd forgotten all about that. Film. Yeah, I've never seen it. And then when I pulled that up, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's right, Mortal Thoughts, high enough to make number three. Now look, we have purposely not allowed ourselves to use this film. Sure, yeah, this would be number one. So <laughs> this would easily be number one for me. Right. So maybe this is actually if you want to. Be honest, this is probably number four because okay. that would be in the top three. This would be in the top three for sure. Okay. This being Die Hard. Excellent. Yeah, check it out. Mortal Thoughts. It's, it's well worth your time. Excellent. I'm intrigued. Yeah. Number three for me, uh, from a film that's kind of like an interesting mixed bag, but I kind of enjoy it more than what's wrong with it. Um, I'm going to go Corbin Dallas from The Fifth Element. Uh, Luke Basson. That movie's wild. Like, it's it's um, Mila Jovovich, Gary Oldman on playing his most Gary Oldman in that Chris Tucker, Chris Tucker. Ian Holm. It's, it's a crazy movie. And like, it's, he's kind of like that roguish uh, Han solo type character in that film. And I think he plays Willis plays rogue kind of almost outlaw, like much like this film, Westerny yep. uh, really good. And I think that's really exhibited in the, um, the role of Corbin Dallas. Like I said, that's not like one of my favorite like films, but I always just remember him, his presence in it, which Willis brings a lot of presence and and gravitas to his performances. So that's number three for me. Good choice. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting film for me. Yeah, that was one that everybody loved and I didn't, mm-hmm. and I haven't watched it in a while now. Uh, I bet it's probably still going to be in that same space for me, but I do want to sometime revisit that just to see. Like that was a movie, honestly that we walked out of. Mm-hmm. That's how much I hated that film. Mid 90s sci-fi is such an interesting between that like Judge Dredd, Demolition Man. Uh it, it's it's such an interesting little subgenre because most of it isn't good. <laughs> right. So I know you like him in that. Do yeah. you like that film? Yeah, like I that's why I said it's such a mixed bag. There's parts of it I do like, but then there's stuff that's like the like really off-putting and strange about it. When that blue thing starts singing, mm-hmm. I I looked at Denise and we, we, bye. We were gone. See you later. Lame. Yeah. All right. But I'm curious. I'd like to revisit that again. Mm -hmm. Number two for me. Ooh, a Luke Basson cast. That that would include Leon the Professional, wouldn't it? Oh, that might be a good one. Yeah. Good idea. Mm -hmm. Is that before or after the Spader cast? (laughs) James Spader. You got a lot to do. It's been, it's taken me a whole week to watch that Watcher movie with him. Oh yeah. That's just, that's the, that's the, just the definition of a generic film. Yeah. Yep. What's number two? Joseph Cornelius, mm. Last Boy Scout. Nice. I love that. Oh, uh, that, that that's the Shang Black cast. <laughs> yeah. That one he didn't screw up, though. Yeah, that's good. Um, Kind of noir-ish in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's crime thriller anyway. Damon Wayans is really good in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scene in the hot tub with the football is unforgettable. What's the line? He's like, he's like, he's like, you know how fat, how fat she is. How fat was she? You had to roll around with flour and look for the wet spot. Like so good, <laughs> so Shane Black. Yep. Um, vagina humor is so Shane Black, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. So that's number two for me. Excellent. I just how when was the last time you uh, saw that? No, film? so last. No, no, there was but this was back in February. I went through like a, a '90s action like thing because I watched Executive Decision, that mm. um, Demolition Man, and I just went through a period Patriot of games. All, yeah, all that stuff. Uh, it still holds up. It's pretty long. Kiss goodnight. Oh yeah, all that stuff. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Yeah, I like that one too. I know. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. Shane Black stuff there. Number two for me, David Dunn. I mean, the Unbreakable episode is very well-rounded discussion on the talents of Shyamalan, but it can't be understated how good Willis is in that role. He's really good in, as Malcolm Crow in The Sixth Sense, but like for the type of film that Unbreakable is, I mean, he he just really really brings it. Uh, to that role. I won't have, I don't want to say anything again. I have a suspicion it's going to show up on your list here coming up. Yeah. That's number two for me. Okay. Yeah. Number one, this shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. Yeah. We should have probably outlawed this for both of us because <laughs> we've talked about it so much for all of the things that that movie is for me and was for Shaman. It's mostly because Bruce Willis is able to come through in such fantastic manner as David Dunn. Mm-hmm. If you take, the swashbuckling humor that was <clears throat> moonlighting and then the cowboy action bit that was die hard. Mm-hmm. And then the, Oh, what would you call Jimmy Urbanski um, foil in a neo-noir thriller, a little bit more intellectual, take his role in the color of night with Jane March. I've seen that one. Yeah, it's an interesting film, too. Mm-hmm. And then you look at what he is in this film. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's quite a range. Yep. He can act. Oh, yeah. He just, I think a lot of times we've talked about this, it's mm-hmm. sometimes the roles you take versus maybe what you don't take. Sure. But David Dunn is, we haven't done my favorite protagonist list ever. Mm-hmm. He would be top five with a bullet. Yeah. Um, yeah he's got a lot going on. That's a perfect film for me. Mm-hmm. So. This is so on the nose. I don't want to talk no, about it anymore. Okay. It's so obvious. Thank you for not taking <laughs> I it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Well, we've talked about Unbreakable. Somehow that works its way into every other episode. Sure. So it's did a, it again it's tonight. It's an integral film. I love it. Okay, yeah, David Dunn. Number one for me. We talked a lot about him last week. Um, I got to go Butch Coolidge from Pulp Fiction. Uh, when we talk about this, it's going to be interesting because throughout my life, coming across that film and how many times I've seen it, I've seen that film a lot. Uh, I always kind of change my opinion on which segment is my favorite. I really like the bit at the beginning. I like the date bit with Mia Wallace and Vincent Vega. I like the bit that you talked about them at the diner wrapping it up and the stuff with the wolf, uh, Harvey Keitel. Mm-hmm. But there was a period there where that watch sequence with the gimp and the pawn shop was my favorite part of the movie. It was just the way it all unfolds into this crazy nightmare. And he's he's really good at it as this boxer who... Man, like he's just got everyone after him, but this watch has so such a significant meaning to him and his family lineage. He just has to get it back. And that moment of realization when he, this man that's trying to kill him, he just he can't leave him down there for the almighty hell that's about to befall him. The turn to go back in there to get him out with the katana blade is that's just that's great. Zed's dead, baby. Mm-hmm. Zed's dead. Mm-hmm. Good choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Butch Coolidge. This would be number one for me. Like this is the film that made his career, but it's what I remember him most from. And he got to play it four more times. Right. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's, it's a good career. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like from Sean Connery mm-hmm. till now, we've had mm-hmm. 
a pretty significant amount of discussion about defining roles for male or actors. And uh, maybe that's a precursor of what's to come. Oh, da, da, da. yeah. That, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll unveil that at the tail end of the episode. Indeed. It's massive. <laughs> massive. <laughs> it's massive. <coughs> well, excellent. Cheers. I like your list. Cheers, Jesse. I'm going to go check out that, that film that I haven't seen there, adding it to my, to my list. Save it because what we'll do is we'll do that together. In the cast where I show you something you haven't seen, vice versa, and then we do something we both haven't seen. That sounds good. That sounds good. Well, let's get to our review breakdown of Die Hard. So, are you lady live out here? About the past six months. Meaning you still live in New York? You always ask too many questions, (laughs) Argyle. Sorry, man. I used to drive a cab, and uh, people would expect a little chit chat. So, you divorced? Just drive the car, man. Hey, come on, you divorced? You separated? <laughs> she beat you up? <laughs> she had a good job. Turned into a great career. So now that meant she had to move here. You're very fast, Argyle. So why didn't you come? Well, why didn't you come with her, man? What's up? Because I'm a New York cop. A six-month backlog in New York scumbags I'm still trying to put behind bars. I can't just pick up and go that easy. In other words, you thought she wasn't going to make it out here, and she'd come crawling up back to you. So why bother to back, right? <laughs> like I said, you're very fast, Argon. All right, there's a lot to unpack in that scene. I want to get back to it. But let's start with how the film starts out, which is McLean landing at LAX on the airplane. And immediately his first character trait is just shown to us. And this can't be overstated how different this would be if Schwarzenegger or Stallone, Mel Gibson, Rich, all these guys that they wanted, Clint Eastwood, real macho, macho men uh, to play this role. He's got a fear of flying. He's like white knuckled while this plane's landing. And I don't know if I, I would buy that if that was Schwarzenegger because he is just so gruff and tough the whole time. I think it works to the film's benefit that someone like Willis, especially at that time, unknown, kind of, uh, it's just more believable that this guy, here's the first introduction, and we're not showing him blowing something up or shooting something down, but it's him scared, actually. And if you think about the fear of flying, it has to do with elevated positioning Mm -hmm. or heights. Mm -hmm. And boy, we're about to get a real big spoonful of that, aren't we? Yeah. So it's a very good setup. Mm-hmm. It shows that he may be tough, but he's also not infallible. And then the part that I always like is his reaction to the guy sitting next to him. This mm-hmm. guy gives him this sort of strange advice on how to get accustomed to where you're going to land and, and make things better. And it's take your feet off or take your feet, take your feet off. Yeah. Take your shoes off and walk around barefoot in your hotel and squeeze the rug with your toes. Make fists with your toes. Mm-hmm. And he kind of takes that and looks at him like he's crazy, but he at least considers it. I think that's a touch of empathy. Yeah. So he's not so hardened. Well, he does it early and later. He, yeah. Right. That mm-hmm. he's saddlebag in sunshine for 50 years mm-hmm. on the back of a horse tough. Mm-hmm. But he's also a little bit of a skeptic and there's a little New York attitude you can identify <clears throat> very well. Yep. That, that beginning scene, like you just said it so well, yeah. is so... Not what the movie is, mm-hmm. but sets up so much character for what the movie will be. Oh, perfect. Estranged relationship with his wife, mm-hmm. fear of heights, pretty tough, New York attitude. Mm. We did, he's a cop because he's carrying the gun. He's yeah. a veteran cop because he's been doing it for 11 years. He's a family man because he's carrying this teddy big teddy bear. I didn't even think about that either. Right? Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Yeah. 
really good writing. Yeah, it's a good setup for for his character. So like as he's in tow there, yeah, just through just kind of the dialogue and and work this is kind of interspersed with Holly's introduction. She has this very prominent role at Nakatomi. I don't even know what quite they do. It almost seems like they're stock traders, but they're like dealing with like real estate and like land development of certain things. I don't know exactly what they do. Something like that. Some conglomerate. Yeah. And we kind of just we're able to kind of piece the the everything together and talking with the kids and the maid about maybe he's going to come in and maybe he can stay with us. Yeah, there's a lot strained there almost ex- explicated by the fact when she slams the family portrait like down just like face down she wants to see him but like not so quick to like reintroduce him into every aspect of her life you would expect a new york cop's wife to be pretty tough mm-hmm. and bonnie bedelia who you brought up very well like hadn't seen her since salem's lot and then you're right <laughs> i hadn't seen her before or maybe after this in salem's lot um mrs m yeah and wants him to come home, but she's pissed off enough that he's not going to sleep in the same room with her because it's make up the spare room. Mm, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. oh that, damn. That's good. It's a little bit better than the couch, but in some ways it's a little colder than the couch because mm-hmm. it's not, it's kind of guest welcoming, but not. It's kind of like unbreakable a short. little bit. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. So we're getting all these great introductions to the characters and then probably the most important character of the entire film. And it's been what this entire cask is about is. The Nakatomi building. This is interesting because like, so this building was being constructed like around the time of filming. So the actual floors that are under, they're they're actually under construction. Like that's not set decoration. They were still building the building. Genius. So that's, uh, that's Fox Plaza. That's like the headquarters of 20th Century Fox, that building. Uh, they're in Century City. So if you happen to be in the area, you drive by, you probably drive by it every day. If you live close to there, how could you not think of anything but Die Hard? There you are, Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> exactly. So they set it up so nicely. So it's Christmas Eve. Uh, there's only the they're having their holiday party. They're the only people in the building. You have this one. It's very sparsely um, protected at this moment because there are so few people in. So when the terrorists roll in, uh, led by Hans Gruber, uh, Alan Rickman. It's just the perfect setup of how they they take down this building. Like they have every exit and every part of it like figured out to the T. Even the anticipated moves of the police and the authority figures later on in the film. Oh yeah. So this building, while imposing, offers a lot of things for uh, a story to to do. Whether that's through elevator shafts, like gunfight with the with the roof in the in the ventilation shafts. Like there, there's just so much you you can do here. So the the writer. Uh, Jeb Stewart, um, Fox had wanted to adapt this book, which I've never read, and I, I've actually did a little research, and it, for the most part, it's fairly similar, but there's a lot of differences as well. Uh, they wanted him to adapt this book, so he kind of added all these uh, elements from there and then got to tour the building in construction to help kind of set the stages for some of the sequences. That's cool. And Stephen E. D'Souza was kind of like the action touch-up guy, like the Shane Black, if you will, <laughs> on right. Predator. right. But one element that I found interesting, and I've, I've heard this story a couple times, so Jeb Stewart, and I can't even probably tell you anything else that guy's written, uh, one night got in a fight with his wife uh, and just stormed out of the house and just went down driving uh, on, on the L.A. freeway. And in the middle of the freeway, like, just thing, like this refrigerator box had fallen off the back of a truck, and he, he didn't have time to, like, move. So he's going to like pound into this thing. So he's like, I'm going to die. Like, this is going to destroy my car and I'm going through the, I'm dying. 
the box was empty, but it got him thinking. It was like the last thing I told my wife was we got into this big, heated, huge blowout. So he immediately turned around, went back home, apologized to his wife. But the element that was missing in the screenplay, which was this crucial relationship between John and Holly, he added that touch of what would you do if like, yeah, the last thing you told your significant other was this big fight. Now you're in this extraordinary circumstance. What would you do at all costs to just say, I'm sorry. And that's kind of what McLean does in this film. Like everything is a reaction to try to like save her. You get to save the rest of the hostages, but she's the most important one. I like what you said there, and it makes sense why the strained relationship between husband and wife was working in this. I did a little research. Another 48 hours in The Fugitive are also Jeb. Oh, Stewart, like so he's, he's done all right. Cool. When he sees his wife at Nakatomi Plaza and we have the reconvening, he's already upset because she's changed her last name and she's hiding behind, well, that's sort of the culture that is accepted here at <clears throat> Nakatomi Plaza, which may be bullshit, maybe not. But regardless it shows that they're pulling apart because he says, no, no, you are my wife and you will take my last name. And mm -hmm. it's not so much a, a position of dominance other than just acknowledging the separation between the two of them. So he's trying desperately to keep it there. And that turns into a pretty big blowout between the mm -hmm. two of them. Mm -hmm. And you get a chance to really see how stubborn both of these two people are. And that's going to be really important for this as it goes forward. And it makes me wonder now if Jeb and his wife had a very similar conversation. Sure. You write what you know, mm -hmm. which is sort of scary for where you and I are right now. but Because uh, <laughs> um, that's either we know nothing or we're very sick. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah. That's, I didn't know that. That's a good story. Yeah, that's a nice anecdote because honestly, that's probably maybe, I don't, that's might be the strongest element at play in this film. And there's a lot of really... Yeah. There's something that equals it, but like because their relationship is so strange and then it just makes the reunion and the catharsis and the final sequences that much more satisfying, especially the watch bit when they release Hans at the end. But we'll, we'll work up to that. When what we get to is an interesting route that the writer takes in order for Hans, the bad guy, Gruber, mm -hmm. Alan Rickman, God rest his soul. R.I.P. R.I.P. Brother. Mm -hmm. Um, to figure out that they are husband and wife. And then secondly, despite the fact that there is this river of animosity that is between the two of them, distance and occupation, communication, all of the natural barriers that might break down a relationship, he gets to play hero because despite all of that, he's going to look after those that he cares about. Mm -hmm. And that's just such a smart but simple way to get your audience to believe in the heroicism of mid eighties mm -hmm. to mid nineties action hero mm -hmm. guy mm -hmm. is literally page one of how you write pro tag at that time period. It's number, it's the first, yeah, they will stand up for you against all odds. And that's what this film is. And if you think about this, this movie for being single location and it, it kind of plays by, those rules, but they have a few more sets available to them than normal, just one location reservoir dogs kind of did, mm -hmm. but still it's a single location, one place. It's a man. It's a story about a man and a woman working through their relationships 
And even as they're working through their relationships, the conflict is making them even more estranged. Mm -hmm. He can't actually, he doesn't really want Hans Gruber to know that's his wife. Yeah. Because for the same reason that Spider-Man wears the mask to quote unquote, protect his loved ones. Mm -hmm. Same thing there. He can't let the cat of the bag because then not only is she in jeopardy, Mm -hmm. but everyone else is because they'll use her against him. And isn't that why they're not together anyway? Because the job's yep. been using her yeah, exactly. against him. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right. Such nice parallels. Yeah. Well, let's talk about another parallel. You set it up so nicely just a second ago. Alan Rickman is Hans Gruber. So the terrorists come in and their Pacific Courier. I told you, yeah. Pacific Courier shows up in Speed. Cinematic Universe? <laughs> right. McTiernan film number yeah. three or four or something. Exactly. Okay, so yeah, we get this introduction to Hans and his swarm of terrorists and I'm always just, I love how they're all dressed just so differently. All of them. Euro trash sweats. Yeah, exactly. Someone calls them Euro trash album Ellis uh, later on. Mm -hmm. Could you think you could supplement Mr. Joshua's men for some of Hans Gruber's men? Do you think they're interchangeable? (laughs) Is it with Mr. Joshua? Is it the, just the absurdity of his name or is it Gary Busey? Both (laughs) for a really solid film. That's kind of based in this. It's like, it's a similar world. It's the year prior. Yeah. Damn. Mr. Joshua. It's both because Gary Busey has that aura of him and the name's ridiculous too, but he's like a mean son of a bitch in that film too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think if given the chance, Mr. Joshua's men would jump at the opportunity to go work for Hans Gruber. Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, yeah. And Mr. Joshua could have used a Carl right-hand man at his side. Amen. Okay, excellent. So you brought up something, though. Okay. I forget what that guy's name, and I'm, I think he's in um, Big Trouble in Little China, too. I'll look him up. He is. He's definitely in that. He's in Lethal Weapon. I know he's in Last Action Hero, too. We'll look up his name, but he's like... like Asian baddie. Asian... Thug. Asian thug, yeah. <laughs> he And he's played it in all these films. Well, good for him. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, a parallel. So the Holly-John relationship's really good. To me, why this film works even better than most action films do is because villain and protagonist play off each other so well. And that's probably due to the fact of Alan Rickman's casting, his first major film role. Man, really knocking it out of the park just right off the bat. But we talk about a lot, too, in in a lot of the Batman films that do feature the Joker, he almost overshadows the Batman character because he is such a dominating presence. Agreed. And that happens in a lot of films, like even like with Thanos and like a lot of like really bombastic villains really steal the spotlight from the heroes. This is a film where I almost see them as equals of... McLean's such a dominating figure, but so's Gruber, so that those opposing forces just parallel each other so well that when once they do share the screen in a in a few scenes, it's explosive. Like the tension is just uh, like unreal. So I don't see either one of them like overpowering the the other in like in terms of importance or or performance. Like I, I see them as equals, and I think that helps the film. They're, we're not empathizing with with one or the other. Uh, I think we're both just captivated by both parties. That's hard for a movie to do, too. It'd be worth a read to see how much of the John McClane character is ad-libbed by Willis Mm. and how much of the Hans Gruber character is ad-libbed by Alan Rickman. Mm. Or if it's just on the page and they were able to deliver it. You brought up something that I'm going to pose to you again now for everyone to hear your take on this. Jeremy Irons' name came up Mm -hmm. with the Hans Gruber, Alan Rickman sort of trope. Oh, yeah, because uh, Jeremy Irons, has, he was one of the names floated around for Severus Snape. So mm-hmm. 
the thought on this is when you go back and look at Alan Rickman's career, there's tons of good roles from the sheriff of Nottingham to the about to commit an affair, adulterer in love actually to this. My contention is if you watch Snape in any of the Harry Potter films Mm -hmm. and compare the effortlessness that he comes across as Snape compared to Mm -hmm. the female version of Johnny Depp, Helena Bonham Carter, vomit as Bellatrix Black. And she's just working so hard to be over the top. Mm -hmm. I think we've missed a great opportunity Mm. to really celebrate a very talented man. Yeah. Jeremy Irons as Snape is also worth considering in a European role like this character in this film. Do you buy it? Could he have done it? Is anybody else in your mind? So yes, Jeremy Irons, or is there anybody else that you could see pulling this off? I don't know if Jeremy Irons could have pulled out that hairdo that Snape has, but I'd be intrigued to see, but what about Gruber? You know what's funny about that too, because Jeremy Irons plays Simon Gruber in mm-hmm. Die Hard with the Vengeance, so right. he he, he kind of fits that that Euro trash terrorist already. I don't know. I, I would like to have seen that, but it's also hard to not picture Alan Rickman in the Snape role and kind of vice versa. But let's hear him because you said something just so understated in his delivery. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, due to the Nakatomi Corporation's legacy of greed around the globe, they are about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. You will be witnesses. And then follow that up with... I'm going to count to three. There will not be a four. Give me the code. One. Two. Three. I don't know, Ed. I'm telling you. Get on the jet to Tokyo and ask the chairman. I'm telling you, you're just going to have to kill me. Okay. We do it the hard way. That seems really important, too, because he is so calm in his demeanor and delivery but is not above not shooting this guy point blank in the face. I'll never forget like that splatter of brains hitting the, the, the doors, the glazed doors. So it introduces a villain that's A, not to be trifled with, B, totally in control of the situation, doesn't even have to get agitated or aroused or, or anything with the situation because he is in such control because he's thought this thing out so perfectly. So he guns this guy down in cold blood, and we're going to see him carry that action out again with our, our friend Ellis. Mm-hmm. But there's also a really great moment where we see a humanizing element to him, and it has to do with Bonnie Bedelia, mm-hmm. Holly's request for a bathroom break and a sofa for a pregnant woman. So although he is mm. a cold-hearted bastard yeah, yeah. and bloodthirsty there is a piece of him that's recognizable as human. He tells actually a couple jokes with that Theo guy. They have some nice dialogue banter back and forth. Um, and because of that, he's not so cold and hateable yeah. that you don't, in a weird way, yeah. 
kind of start pulling for him a little bit. Yippee Kaye, motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Like that, even that is so, they all have a great laugh before we get to the end of what's coming. He's, he's a, I'm glad you brought up that human. It, yeah. That, that almost like, that's a moment of, yeah, this guy's a piece of trash, but I mean, he did, did offer this kind of, you know, salvation for the, for these people in that moment. So he's not entirely like, but Mr. Joshua would not allow a couch to be brought out. It's almost like he's reasonably unstable. Mm. And if you think about it, before um, he kills Takagi, mm-hmm. he's fairly reasonable there too. If you'll just give me the code, we don't have to go through this. Yep. I'm going to go through it. It depends what you, what role you want to play in this mm-hmm. action. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Takagi has the code or not, but he tries and fails. And then carries out this terrible, terrible action that he has to do to make sure his plan comes to fruition. Mm-hmm. He's such a good villain. Yeah, I was just going to say, such a good villain. Yo, like, I had uh, given the 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 time of time of the year, how I'm feeling. Like, man, there's a lot of great film villains I like: uh, Darth Vader, Hannibal Lecter, Norman Bates, <laughs> things like that. I, like, I, I have no problem putting Hans Gruber in that top ten. Like, it, easy. Like he's because he's so layered and like of all those things we just said, it makes for a very interesting character. He's nowhere near one or two dimensional. He's like a six dimensional character. Well, one of the things that you and I both tend to like mm-hmm. is family. Yeah, some version of family in script or story mm-hmm. because it's very relatable. Yep. If he's got enough consideration inside of him to worry about the well being of a pregnant woman, yeah then that is a direct reflection of family. And so it plays well to you and I, but it not only just you and I in that space, I don't know anyone Mm -hmm. that's ever said Hans Gruber's a ridiculous villain. Yeah, no. I mean, we can make that case about Megatron all day long. (laughs) You know what I mean? Exactly. There's lots of them. Yeah. Ultron fits into the ridiculous. A lot of those those guys yeah nobody i've never in my life yeah I now any. someone i'm sure will be like i'm that guy but Hans Gruber is so stupid. <laughs> but for the most part you're just being that person just being contrarian because that's not accurate not he's in, not a, not in that villain. evidence yeah that i'm glad you brought up that scene because i'd wanted to talk about it and i probably would have forgotten about it but that that's so important to his betrayal as this character well so if both of these guys are kind of then at least cognizant of family John McClane a little bit more because he's protecting his. Mm-hmm. And there's a symbiosis between the two of them mm-hmm. that has to happen between protagonist and antagonist. And when done well and they play off each other, here's the truth. Mm-hmm. Here it is, screenwriting 101. Yeah. Both of them want the same outcome. Just in different ways. They're just going to execute it differently. And I mean, think about this. Yeah. For Gruber, it's money. For a better retirement life on the beach somewhere. Mm-hmm. And what has actually broken up John McClane's family? A job. Her job. Money. Money. Mm-hmm. Can I just say, so simple yeah. and so genius. Yeah. to that. In an action film, too. Are you even sure this is an action film? Is it? Because we're not talking like this is an action film. This sounds like a drama. I think it's a Christmas film. Christmas drama? Yeah. <laughs> With guns. Let's get back to McLean. So some of the things he tries to do to get the authorities to just come like show up because they've cut the phone lines. He tries the fire alarm. No, they got that figured out. They call and call off the fire. I always really like that that first encounter with Carl's brother uh, there in the in the stairwell, and he just snaps his neck down down on the fall. Mm-hmm. But 
McLean starts doing something really interesting and, you know, whether it's someone in a stressful situation because he is so singular and solo the entire duration until Powell enters the picture, he talks to himself a lot. It's not like an inner monologue, but like he's just posing questions and thoughts and this. And one of the fair ones is like, why the fuck didn't you stop them, John? Because then you'd be dead too, asshole. It's like he's having a conversation with his conscience, but it's also a stress reliever for him because of the situation. Right. And I, Willis is just so good at that. And I wonder if a lot of those things were, were ad-libbed or uh, improvised by him. Gosh, it sure seems like it, doesn't it? It does, because a lot of stuff like, like, uh, like I'm going to kiss you Dalmatian, like like when, with, with the, the fire department. Come out to the coast. We'll have a good time. Have a few laughs. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll play that one. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. It's like an untapped humor that he's trying to get into to help him cope with the situation, which is probably what someone in that situation would try and do. Uh, I think I think that aspect of the of the story's genius, and I don't know if that's screenplay or adlib or McTiernan's direction, but whoever decided that, a plus to you, because then we see his wry sense of humor too ah. when he looks. He's got this dead guy he puts to this um, little office chair, and that alone would be enough to walk into and deliver to the terrorist. But he puts a Santa hat on there and then writes, "Now I have a machine gun." Ho ho ho. Uh, that's just it's just really sticking it to those guys at, at that moment. The game of one-upsmanship is now on between him and Gruber. Mm-hmm. And I guess the second salvo fired is McLean's. They don't know who he is. He already has a line on who they are. And he's wiped out one of their leading generals. Not, I mean, it's, it's Alexander Gudinov for sure. Mm-hmm. But his brother. Yeah. Okay, so here's what we're getting. He seems to be capable of presenting a formidable challenge to the bad guy. There's a team of stormtroopers. What I mean by that is disposable fodder that are terrorists that he's going to get to go through to prove that. But think about it. He had literally nothing and he finished off third or fourth in command. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to believe that maybe he's capable of taking down this terrorist conglomerate theft commissioned organization it's an interesting chess match that we watch at play here because in order for him to get any type of semblance of help down to him he has to then put himself at risk whether it's the fire alarm in that sequence going up to the roof to broadcast to get the cops down here and then he loses the high ground in that regard and then he's and then and then later when he's smashing the window to get the body out he alerts people because of the noise it's it's a delicate kind of chess game that he's playing with these guys. He has to take these uh, risks in order to progress this further. Otherwise, it's just going to be him against them, and he knows he needs some like outside assistance on this one. The amen to a protagonist who who is honest enough to realize that equation too. Oh man, the poor guy doesn't even have shoes, and we'll get to that too. I'm sure. Oh yeah, he devises a plan where he sets off the fire alarm and the authorities arrive and then they are quick turn around as Gruber and his men outsmart them and just say it's false alarm you can go back home yeah we recognize that he knows he can't do this alone 
but there's not going to be a lot of help coming from the authorities because they're just incapable. Mm -hmm. Kind of a statement on LAPD versus NYPD also, if you want to be frank about it. Yeah. A man alone can do a lot more than the masses of bureaucratic nonsense assembled to do nothing. Mm -hmm. Because it's shown no better. Yeah than the two or three guns that he comes to and what he's able to do with them versus, I, I don't know, the entire SWAT team that shows up from LAPD and just gets their asses handed oh, to yeah. them. Oh, yeah, yeah, big time. With a singular rocket launcher, just get wiped mm-hmm. out. Um, There's a lot working in that. A yeah. man alone can do more. He's looking for help. It's not offered, except the help that he is given that's maybe the most important is in that of... Friendship or brotherhood. Reginald, Back to the family Reg, theme. Reginald Vell Johnson. And those two form yeah. a great relationships that might make a great relationship. Sorry, singular. Yeah. A great relationship that might make this now semi-bromance. Sure. And we've seen and this is again trope of the time, whether it's 48 hours or lethal weapon, and that's the multi-ethnic cop friendship mm-hmm. that blows up and carries a lot of the second act slag and you know why that's important yeah because the second act can get pretty dry because it's just sort of finishing the quest part of the film but if you have a nice relationship that you've developed then it makes it more interesting and i think you have some sound yeah well it's just how they're introduced to each other let's do it hey lincoln 30 to dispatch Eight oh thirty, go ahead yeah that's a wild goose chase over here at nakatomi plaza everything here is okay over but nobody has no thanks to let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Dear God, everything is a crap! Nothing says like there's a situation in this building like hurling a, a, a body down 20 floors. Down to your car. Like, I think at this point you realize, yeah, something's going on up in this building. But, yeah, like, you're right. It starts this this partnership, and it's ears on the ground, ears up in the building, and the two-way communication that, um, that they both provide uh, a bit of relief for all the tension just at play. But then the guy that comes and mucks it up is Paul Gleason as Deputy Chief Dwayne Robinson, who... Doesn't mess, with, mess with the bull. You get the horns. <laughs> it's who he's playing in this film too. He um he just doesn't believe that McLean is who he says he is. Uh, he might be one of the terrorists. We don't know what they want and this and that. They're they're just trying to grab hold of the situation. And then yeah, we get that that sequence that you brought up where they bring in the SWAT team, they bring in the armored car, and they're all just destroyed. All of them. One of the things that struck me in this viewing was the lengths that John McClane has to go through to keep Al around and on his side. So I think this is the third attempt. So we have the fire alarm mm-hmm. spot that we spoke about. And then there's that argument that he gets with dispatch. On the roof, yeah. Where she's like, just whatever. Like basically saying, you're on your own. You know, I'm going to report this. Report what? Yeah. yeah, report it. Come on down. Take my word. Like, mm-hmm. And he's not getting any help. So... He has a very limited amount of resources to fight off these terrorists. It's basically whatever gun he has. And he exhausts probably 50% of his ammunition Mm -hmm. on Al's car just to make sure that he stays interested, Mm -hmm. quotes around interested, and continues to offer a helping hand, which 
I think even John McClane's character knows at a base level is only going to be emotional. He can't rush into the building. He's going to get shot on sight. Yeah. So I just need some place to go with this anxiety or for a screenwriting trope to explain what I'm thinking to the audience because in a single location there may be some challenges to show the motivations, but if I can do it smartly through exposition or dialogue, let's take advantage of that. It solves a lot of problems, that relationship, not only story and singularity of antagonists, I'm sorry, protagonists taking on a widely superior group, but then also to speed the motivations of those involved. Mm -hmm. I I mean this, and I I say this a lot, I've I've started third or fourth time. It's absolute genius the way that's crafted. Yeah, so effortlessly in this film. They're not trying very hard. It, everything's just so it's just so layered in how in its delivery. Let's get to probably the creme de la creme moment of this film. Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. You know what's interesting about that line, too, is Gruber's rattling off all these very manly men. John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon from Gunsmoke. And McLean picks, nothing against Roy Rogers, but he just kind of picks the everyman in, in his, who he likes. Roy Rogers. Blue collar, nothing supernatural about him, just kind of an everyman dude, because that's what he is. He's nothing super superior about those other guys. And then to part it off with that parting shot, that's like the biggest middle finger you could ever, to terrorists, literally. They could have the ability to blow this building in half if they wanted to. And in this moment, he's like enough to, again, that one-upsmanship. Now he has the, the upper hand in this fight. You brought up a Western theme in this film. Oh, it's so Western. <clears throat> right. So generally Westerns are the civilized versus the uncivilized. So take all of the names that Gruber just mentioned as in that space being more uncivilized or savage. Consider some of the earlier conversations with Gruber, especially with Takagi, about men's fashion mm-hmm. and some of the finer things in life. I read about Civilized. it. I read about it in Forbes, right? <laughs> or I read about these guys in Time. Mm-hmm. You have in a really interesting juxtaposition because Westerns work on the Western hero is just a little more civilized than the savage bad guys, and that's what's going to allow him to not go the way of being complete bad guy themselves. They totally have reversed it mm-hmm. in this very formal world that is ultra civilized. Gruber, I think, admires John McClane and his uncivilized Western hero. And if you think about even the clothing that these two wear, a wife beater and a pair of beat-up slacks that starts white and ends up gray, Mm -hmm. and the other ones end up brown because they're so filthy, Yeah. to never a hair being out of place on Hans Gruber's head. That's good. They're really playing on a super interesting reversal Mm -hmm. of what the Western hero and villain do. That's good. Again, really smart Mm -hmm. (laughs) not done on accident it's why this movie works like the way that it does Mm -hmm. oh that's good 
Let's talk about two other elements at play here, kind of around this section. By the way, I got to say, like, you're on fire with the board tonight, dude. You're doing a great job over here. Yeah, you got some sound. The man. audio from Die Hard is is awesome. Yeah, it's highlighted well tonight, today. Two 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 other elements uh, at play here after that that kind of LAPD uh, SWAT team takedown and and McLean saves them with the C4. That's one of my favorite sequels. He just launches the C4 down the elevator shaft and boom. The great co- explosion, co- huh? Oh, this is, it's so good. The covering glass. Glass, who gives a shit about glass? <laughs> right. William Atherton playing uh, this douche reporter guy. And he's got that cornerstone market in 80s films. OSHA now. Ghostbusters asshole. So, so good. <laughs> OSHA, that's exactly what he is. Uh, trying to find some story and then kind of picks up on the police band of this Nakatomi thing. So he's like the only news thing that goes out there. And then so when that moment happens, he drops a C4 and they capture it. He actually has like the media element right where they want him. So that's not enough. So like, and then he's like, we got to dig up more, figure out what's going on, which leads to probably the most despicable moment in the entire film when mm-hmm. they're able to track McLean's, uh, uh, Holly's uh, residence little up the road where the kids live and everything. And he's going to like exploit the kids on TV for the sake of news to talk to the parent. Like it's the most messed up thing in the entire film. Well, add to that. He's threatens the housekeeper with immigration services. If she doesn't let him in. Oh my God. Yeah. He's a prick. He's the worst. And he he gets, he gets a nice punch there at the end, but that's just another element. Like you talk about these action films. It's not enough that like you have the terrorists in the building and they have their goals and what they're going to do. And you're one man against, an army you have to deal with stuff like that too authority figures mucking it up downstairs the media trying to spin it their way and screwing up your personal life to make it more dangerous for you up in the building it's just another part of the roller coaster that the film guides so well so we have that and then this part that actually gives gruber the name of uh of John McClane, which is Ellis's so-called deal, Hans Booby. Booby. I'm your white knight. Mm-hmm. Trying to negotiate with them to kind of stop the chaos. What do you think of that sequence? Because that one's always very fascinating to me too. What I love about it, this is going to be ridiculous, mm-hmm. but hear me out. Okay. What I love about it, it is so cognizant of its own time period. Mm. Cocaine-fueled Ellis. Yeah. Right, couple lines, couple bumps, in I go because now I have this powdered courage, and we've seen that earlier with him to show up, mm-hmm. and because I have, which is such a statement on things of that time, excess, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, goes in, and he thinks that he's slick enough to glad hand, baby kiss, and backslap his way through a common lingo like poison pill and mucking the works up and all that crap that he throws out there. He thinks he's going to be able to bring Hans Gruber to some position where the situation has been handled. Mm -hmm. He has some motivations though, that I think make this scene even more important. He wants to be the white knight because that will get him Holly who he's had been, been shining one on for the entire film. He gave her this like Rolex watch. Like it's a pretty substantial gift. (laughs) And he fancies himself quite the negotiator. Yep. Boy, he's in way over his oh, head. Oh, he pays. All off, shown off screen. Until they they have that really great shot when uh, Gruber's talking to Deputy Chief Johnson on all the incels that he wants released. And they kind of pan around the, the chair and it's kind of out of focus. But you see just like the glaze of blood coming out the bag. Like, that's, that's really good. Yeah. It's a good way to show it. 
the thing also, again, to solidify the heroic nature of John McClane is he desperately is begging Ellis to shut up because he can see what he is walking into blindly. He's going to kill you, Ellis. Gruber, I don't know this guy. Ellis, tell him you don't know me over and over, like pleading with him. And you know what the most important line in that whole scene is? Mm. It's what John McClane doesn't say. Yeah, nothing. He just goes quiet because he knows if he says another word, it's only going to put one more nail in the coffin of Ellis, which by this point, we don't know it's too late, but it's too late. And here's the, here's the other part that I love. Gruber just stone cold blasts him. He doesn't even blink twice about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, he drinks his last little drink. I don't know if you noticed, but he takes his last little sip of new Coke. Mm. Not old Coke, but mm. it's new Coke. Mm. <laughs> what a disaster that was. Yeah. So of its time. Yeah. And then out. Bye. Yep. Lights out. And they drag him away all lifeless in front of everyone. And Gruber doesn't miss a beat. He just keeps on going. Such a singular focus of completing this task no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. So bad guy. The next sequence that unfolds is he needs the remaining detonators because once they open up this vault, which is revealed, though, like this is kind of the main goal. Uh, hostages be damned. It's all about the bearer bonds located in this vault. And it's got a crazy, like, seven-layer security system, but they, they're going to need these detonators to bl- kind of blast the, this remaining kind of electromagnetic field. So he goes up to the roof, checks it, runs into McLean, and the shifty bastard that he is is able to really kind of concoct this ruse of, I'm an escaped hostage, and I kind of figure this all out, and he gets McLean going there for a little bit. I always kind of wonder, I, I try to kind of pinpoint it, I was like, I was like at what point does McLean know who this guy is because groupers even got a name picked out too. Like that's how good he is. Like William clay. Yeah. I always kind of wonder what moment is it that like McLean clicks that like, I think this is the guy kind of a thing. And I don't even know if it's like explicitly told, but like it's figured out in that time period. I was thinking the same thing too. The closest he comes to seeing him is when he's in the elevator shaft above them talking Mm -hmm. and he hears it but he doesn't pick up on that right off the bat because when he meets Gruber, Gruber's doing, again, to Alan Rickman's credit, a very heavy natural accent in this film, which is just him being him. Yeah. Speaking like a red-blooded, true Midwestern American Bill Clay. You can't, there's not a hint of accent anywhere in that. Yeah. That's really, really talented dialect acting. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a question, though, about something else. Um, are we fin- Is that thread finished, or do we want to do something? Is there more on that? Well, just about, because I like how it kind of dispenses in, into this because it leads to, again, the game, like, over overstepping one other person's bounds here. Okay. Oh, well, well. Hans. Put it down. Now. It's pretty tricky with that accent. You gotta be on fucking TV with that accent. But what do you want with the detonators, Hans? I already used all the explosives. But did I? I'm going to count to three. Yeah. Like you did with Takagi. Bullets. You think I'm fucking stupid, Hans? You're saying? 
into chaos. Well, you said it really good in when we were watching it. Like all hell's just broken loose at like at this point. Just, shoot, shooting the glass to get the detonators and just wrecks McLean's feet because this is his only escape af- out after that that part. Explosions on multiple floors. Who knows who's doing what? Nothing's working. It's just absolute carnage. Mm-hmm. Three films I want you to think about. Okay. Any of the Oceans film, let's say Oceans 11. Thief and The Sting. All three of those movies hinge on this essential idea, and that's the people that are planning the heist being so well-schooled in what the reactions or natural inclinations of those they're trying to steal from and then using that against them. Yep. Those are conspiracy, think it out before your opponent can get ahead of you kind of films. Is Die Hard and Gruber using the natural inclinations of the opposition against them better? Probably. In those three films. Because I think so too. Because when, when you really see that come to head is in the very next sequence when he takes the detonators to Theo and uh, the FBI, Special Agent Johnson and John, Little Johnson and Big John, Robert Davi. <laughs> yep. They're going to cut the building's power. They're going through the Universal Terrorist playbook. This is how the feds handle situations like this. So through Gruber's natural inclinations of how things play out in scenarios like this, he said, we're, we're, we're going to be one step ahead of them because right when we're about ready to open this thing, they're going to cut the power. They're going to essentially open the vault for us. Right. And it's, it's a great moment. I, I like his delivery, and I wish I had an audio clip, but maybe I'll do my best. He says, he says you wanted a miracle, Theo, and I give you the FBI. Mm-hmm. It's essentially what it is. He knows their playbook better than they know their exactly. playbook. Mm-hmm. Tab A and slot B equals C, and we get off with a million dollars or $600 million in this case. Yeah, and and the hostages at this point are just pawns that are going to go up to the roof. They're going to blow up the roof, probably kill all of them, and escape via the carnage in uh ambulance, like through all the wreckage. Like They'll be sifting through the building trying to find out where we are and thought we died there, and we'll be well ahead of them. The final 30-ish minutes of the sting all hinge on this this idea, which is, can we take what people, Robert Shaw, again, (laughs) as the bad guy in that (laughs) film, not drunk in that film, no, I don't think. Can we take what's going to happen, Doyle Lonigan, Mm -hmm. can we take what those guys are going to do and use it in a sequential manner to have them undo themselves? And the sting is a movie entirely based on on Newman and Redford being able to pull that off. That's the whole film. Mm-hmm. It's a highly acclaimed film, widely regarded, one of the best heist movies ever. Blah, I like blah, it. Blah, blah, blah. I do too. Yeah. I think in what is presented, or I think in some regards thought of as knockoff mid-80s, high-powered, testosterone-fueled, action-induced, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Gruber's plan of attack to get the feds to open the vaults for him in line with everything that preceded that, how well thought out he is, what the plan of escape is, is comparable in complexity and forethought. Yeah. <clears throat> Jesse, that's crazy mm-hmm. because the sting isn't an action movie. No, that's a drama. Yeah, it is. This is not a drama, but we're sure talking about like it's a well thought out drama. Mm-hmm. Again, here's that same G word. 
it's genius. Yeah. This is so crafted immaculately with the motivations of the characters. I can't give enough credit to that. It's something that it's, space. and it's something that hampers kind of the rest of the diehard sequels because yeah. that element isn't as well thought out as it is in this, in this film, right. the motivations of the, of the antagonist and kind of how they go about it. It's just, yeah, he's just so in control of the situation. Even in the moment where we say, man, shit's getting crazy and it's chaotic up there on the roof. He, he knew it was going to be like this. So he's, he's already ready to go. He's ready for the next step. Theo, go get the ambulance ready. We're going to bring this down. We're getting out of here. All the explosions that are happening also play into Gruber's plan because his plan is they're going to think that we're all dead underneath this rubble. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we just slip out the back and head off to Mexico. And by the time they figure out that none of the dental records, which is all that's left, match us, we're a ghost. Yeah. So even this is working into his plan. It's great. I know. You ready for story time? Yes, I can't wait. I got a great story for you. So awesome. a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Predator and Total Recall, I mentioned I got that big box set of those films from uh, Costco. I got that same box set and I also got the Die Hard trilogy. It was the, the first three on, on DVD. So I'm about like 12, 12, 13. It's like perfect age to find these movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got so obsessed with Die Hard and John McClane. I just like, I couldn't stop watching it. I had to show all my friends and I was just sharing the love of Die Hard. So that upcoming Halloween, I think I'm a freshman in high school. And I was like, I'm going to be McClane for Halloween. Like, yeah, no one's going to know who I am, but I don't care. Wife beater, black pants. I had my little prop gun. Barefoot. Okay, so that's that's the the thing. I oh. wanted to be barefoot. I wanted to be authentic to the role of the Halloween costume, but I was like, man, it's uh, it's it's cold out. I can't just be like running around like barefooting. And this was one of the last times I did go trick or treating before. It, you just get too old and you can't go do it anymore. I was like, I can't be running around these neighborhoods barefoot. I'm gonna get so sick and just like it's just not gonna be a good situation. So my family and I, we scoured the city looking for any type of fake prosthetic feet oh, wow. that I could slip on on my feet. That way I could like be in the role as intended, but like <laughs> not like die well and get a pneumonia while doing it. Right. Could not find it. Oh. So I couldn't be barefoot out in the streets, but you better believe when we were just kind of hanging out the house with my friends. And that, that was a wild Halloween too. Mm-hmm. I got kicked in the nuts that night. <laughs> Uh, like really hard. No, I did by what? my by my friend Josh during we were watching because uh, it was, it was McLean. I wasn't I was in character. Like I, I told him something and he got mad at me. And he just like kicked me in the nuts so hard. <laughs> what? Yeah. So you better believe when I was kind of hanging out, I I was barefoot. I was the full on John McLean role. But that that's how much of an influence this had on me. Was like I just wanted to like be that awesome. be, because he just he is like the everyman. I didn't want to be Rambo or like. Douglas Quaid and Total Recall. I was like, this was more believable to me. Like, I could pull something like this off. Do you have pictures of that costume? I probably do. I'll have to find them. You guys heard it. It's coming. We yeah. have to get. Like, there's to a lot of pictures them. each during the week. This has to be one of the pictures. Yeah, like I, I'm whether I'm dragging myself by Indiana Jones or or something. I, I've always tried to like become these characters because of how influential that they are to me. I, I found and saw Die Hard at the exact perfect time I needed to, and I yeah, and I like Die Hard two and three, and I, I kind of like Die Hard four for that, that 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 point too. So this is a franchise that I'm like I'm very fond of, and it's kind of close to me. Amen. Yeah, I yeah, I'm not going to say anything else. That's a great story. <laughs> it's a whole wild story. You know, the other thing is you probably could have found the feet, and they would have been like super 
costume like large size 25s and you would have been some weird like mongoloid freak so yeah I, I, that, I, I that, that wouldn't have worked out too yeah that 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 halloween also involved like like skinamax like like adult content too like 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 and it, it did, we were worried it would show up on our parents bills like that, that was wild it was wild halloween and you had yourself a night yeah I hope that was a Halloween that fell on a weekend and not a Tuesday. I think it was like a like a Saturday to Sunday. Thank God. It was one of those sleepovers. You know, you have one of those sleepovers, like, and you do, you literally don't go, and you're like, the sun's coming up, and you're like, shit, like, I should try and go to sleep. It's like seven o'clock, going to bed. Oh God, one of those ones. Anyway, well, back to that. You know, <laughs> you and I are never going to Mexico. Okay, excellent. Back to the film. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about this final sequence because it's. Firing on all cylinders at this point. McLean goes back up to the roof to check what the hell is Hans doing up there. Finds the mother of all, like, C4 setups up there. And then finally gets into this confrontation with Carl Gudanov. You killed my brother. Like, yeah, like, I'm not even going to shoot you. Like, I'm just going to beat beat you to death. Their fisticuffs is crazy because it's like... Willis is just punching him so many times and then he's bashing his face on a pipe and then he throws him out and then Gudunov shoots him and like it all over the place, those two. That fight sequence is so long, it's interspersed with two other scenes that are occurring in the same space as the fight. Mm-hmm. Those guys literally beat the hell out of each other for 25 minutes. Yeah. 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 Interspersed with, yeah, getting the hostages up to the roof and then the choppers coming in. We're going to give them choppers up the ass. Can I talk about how they kill Carl? Mm -hmm. Man, this is such one of my all-time favorite deaths. Mm -hmm. So in the struggle that makes its way to the stairwell, Mm -hmm. in what seems to be a logical set piece to find, some chains are just hanging nearby on this iron aluminum stairwell. And... John McClane is able to get enough of a superior position to Carl that he wraps that chain around his neck. And that's not enough. The way that he elevates him to choke him out is by sliding down the stair rail, holding that, taking Carl in tow with him. But we're not done yet. Mm -hmm. Then when he gets to the bottom and Carl is struggling... And he still has the use of his hands, so he can probably create enough space between the chains and his throat yeah. to not choke. Yeah. Then he takes it header into the wall. Mm-hmm. That whole bit. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. How do you just create that out of thin air? I don't know if you That might. is so creative. I, I wonder. I wonder. I was like, did they you had to have just like known the... Be- to look at the surroundings and get a look at the space to be able to stage something like that. Cause I don't even know how you write something. How do you come up with all of that? That's wild. When he goes down the rail and is just holding the chain behind him and pulling Carl yeah. to hangman's noose levels of height. It's that is so cre- creative and so fun to watch. Yeah. I don't know what that looks like on paper, but like maybe like, yeah, I don't know this, this sounds strange, but maybe, maybe it'll work on, Maybe it'll work on screen. And they're both beat to hell. McLean's feet are trashed. I think he's taking a bullet in the shoulder at this point. Their face looked like a red cornucopia of just meat. They just have beaten <laughs> the absolute hell out of each other. Before we get to the the roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. We uh, don't need no water. Yeah, before we get to that part, another very crucial moment happens uh, leading up to that. Listen, man, I'm starting to get a bad feeling up here. I want you to do something for me. Um, 
I want you to find my wife. Don't ask me how. By then, you'll know how. Uh, I want you to tell her something. I want you to tell her that... Um, Told her it took me a while to figure out uh, what a jerk I've been. But, um, that. That when things started to pan out for her, I should have been more supportive. And, uh, I just should have been behind her more. Tell her that, um, that she's the best thing that ever happened to a bum like me. She's heard me saying I love you a thousand times. She never heard me say I'm sorry. Again, to echo your sentiment, is this an action movie or is this a drama? Like, what's that doing in this film? But because it's been set up so well, that scene is so important, it really humanizes the McLean character. And really, his arc comes full circle. And that's the moment, like, for me, when I just met Bruce Willis became a movie star in that sequence right there. Even whips up some tears. Mm -hmm. Okay, so even if you all don't know this, you know this. Yeah. When you give the eulogy that breaks down the tough exterior and exposes your most vulnerable piece, it's usually curtains Mm -hmm. in film. Yeah. When you go there... And give of yourself in that vulnerable state, it means the minutes you have left on the silver screen are dwindling. Mm-hmm. So even though that shit, that would have been something. Yeah. So even though that doesn't happen in this, mm-hmm. it plants the seed in mine, in your mind, and everybody else that's seen this movie upon first viewing, like, wow. Yeah. This guy's really about to meet his maker. Yeah. Because he, well, is, looks he di- is overmatched. And it looks dire at that moment, too. Outgunned, outmatched, outthought. No bullets. His feet are all messed up. Yeah. Can only survive on guile mm-hmm. and elevator shafts and um, recognizance in HVAC systems for so long. Mm-hmm. Sooner or later, you run out of swings. Mm-hmm. Sooner or later, it gets to the bottom of the ninth, then you're down to your final swing. And he is just fouled off O2 fastball on the outside corner. He is close to going down. Yeah. And he acknowledges that. Well, yeah. Oh, you're my buddy. Mm-hmm. Tell my wife I'm sorry. Yeah. Not that I love her. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's enough to get things starting in the direction of being repaired. Yep. All right, let's get back to the roof being on fire. Uh, th- this is the sequence of all sequences. As he goes up, up here, the feds don't know that he's a... Uh, the guy that's on the floor kind of, they think he's a terrorist. So is he shooting wildly to get everyone to go back down because this thing's going to go up. They're tangled into this. So then this thing's going to blow up. Willis is like, I got to get out of this thing. Gruber's like, blow the roof in the perfect symmetry of just like, jump off that roof. The feds are going to shoot him. Gruber's going to blow it. Man, that thing goes up. And the way he (laughs) jumps off with the fire hose that gets detached, gets smashed up against the side of the building. He smashes against the side of the building. And then he's got to get back in. He's got to go back into, into the building because that's the only way to survive. Spider-Man. Has, has to shoot his way in. And then he almost dies again when the thing falls down. The fire hose contraption is going to pull, by sheer weight, is going to pull him out of the building again. 
I don't know which stunt sequence I like better, the part where he hangs Gudnov down the stairwell, um, stair rail, or this one, mm-hmm. when he kicks off the window because he knows he's going to sort of swing back Tarzan style and then shoots the glass as he's going into it. Mm-hmm. Those are both so killer. Yeah, those are good. Shoots the glass and then careens through it. Mm-hmm. But now that there's nothing to anchor the fire hose... It's this large steel tumbering apparatus that goes down that's now pulling him out the window that he just kicked in. He's got nothing on his feet except just pulpy skin. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he better get that damn thing untied. Otherwise, he's going down too. It just, it's never ending. Yeah. That whole five, six minutes is just one thing after another after another. And the, the stakes and the conflict just keep continuing to elevate. It's, Infinitely fun. He's to like watch. a he's like a cat. It's like how many lives does this guy have? Yeah, like exactly. how much of wit does he have to be able to keep getting out of these things? Mm-hmm. So we've talked about Western a lot, whether it's the Yippie Kaye or talking about Gary Cooper and John Wayne and Gunsmoke and all this stuff. We get the final showdown between Hans and McLean. And man, it plays out like a Western dual shootout, like gun against gun. He's got Holly as as hostage at this point, and then even kind of spins him that line. Oh, what was Yippie Kaye, ma fuck! Enough to share this 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 laugh uh, between each other. And what's his parting line to Hans there at that at that point? Happy trails, Hans. Like so so Western. Even the reveal of how he had finally outfoxed Hans. By taping the gun on the back of his neck with mm-hmm. Christmas wrapping paper Christmas tape. wrapping tape, yeah. It's awesome. So hands behind his head so that he can see him. Traditional pose that you take when you're unarmed to show that you're not a threat. And hand goes from behind the head to the gun and boom. <clears throat> is faster on the draw to shoot both of the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Like you said it. Yeah. It's the Western duel and he's the fastest gun. Mm-hmm. In the West or in Nakatomi. Yep. But we're not quite done yet. Oh, yes. The final sequence. The final, final parting shot with Hans. So he's fallen out, but he's still got like a vice grip on Holly there. Going to pull her out of the window too. And I like that he's like clutched on for dear life on this watch. This symbol of, how you said earlier, money, greed, employment, Mm-hmm. What's separated them so much, what's driven them apart between New York and Los Angeles is so symbolized in this watch by Ellis that this is what's hanging on to. So in order to strip those bounds away and get back to how things were, we got to get rid of that. So suck it, Ellis. <laughs> suck it, Ellis, and suck it, Gruber. Because he undoes it just in the nick of time, and then the anchor yeah. that keeps Gruber from meeting, ugh, what, 50 floors below mm-hmm. cement. Yeah is now freed. And so also Holly is also freed. Mm-hmm. This is a great moment because uh, the, the, Alan Rickman didn't do that that full fall that that stuntman did when they do the exterior shot. But um, when he's falling behind like the green screen there, that was like a decent drop, like probably like, like maybe like 35 feet. And like they let, they, they said, we're going to drop you on three and they dropped him on two. So like he was kind of like, a, albeit a bit shocked that they had dropped him early. His reaction's like completely genuine. And man, that's a good look. Sure is. When he's just like falling down there. Mm-hmm. 
One, two. I love Paul Gleason's line. Jesus, I hope that's not a hostage. (laughs) I know. Bureaucratic clown. So everything's, the day say, the tariffs are done. Everything's peaches and cream. And we get down and we get that amazing embrace between Sergeant Powell and McLean. I like how they pick each other out. No one has to say a word to who each other is. Like, like they just see each other. They're just like, I know. And they both know. This is the man that saved him on the floor. Without Powell, I don't think McLean survives. Like, No way. Yeah, no way. Nothing else. It gives him a sounding board to sort of talk things through and at least keep hope alive with maybe what's happening on the ground floor. And we, of we forgot to Plaza. mention, too, that, like, Powell sheds like his deepest, darkest secret to him that like the reason he's like a desk jockey is because he had an accident, accidentally shot a kid while on patrol one night and it's given him like cold feet and hesitation in the job. And he says, I'll never pull a gun out on another man again until this moment when Gudanov comes to. Carl has somehow freed himself from his noose and is now armed with some automatic weapon ready to just unleash hell. Mm -hmm. And John McClane's in no shape to really defend anybody now. There's barely anything left of him. Mm -hmm. With his wife in tow, he covers her on the ground in a very heroic fashion, and we get Reginald Bell Johnson's return to I love it. I love this scene. I I like how it's shot, and you see the gun, and when it comes into focus on who shot it, you get him, and he's kind of been able to bury... Bury that hatchet of his past, too. All wrapped up very nicely. All demons exercised. All demons, yeah, they they, they give William Atherton a, a nice swift punch from Holly there. That's what he rightfully did. And he shows up in Die Hard, too. He's on, on the plane that isn't able to land with, with her. Uh, yeah, everything's wrapped up. Um, Let It Snow plays us out into the credits. And, yeah, and that's it. That's Die Hard. From 1988, I have a few things I'd like to say about it before we kind of wrap this thing up. A budget of 25 to $35 million, $140 million gross, so it was, was pretty decently successful when it came out. In a summer when films like Rambo 3 and The Deadpool, uh, Dirty Harry, like totally like bombed, like they weren't like huge hits. This film had something a little more to offer than those types of films. Well, it's a better film, isn't it? Oh, it's definitely better. Yeah. Uh, uh, very negative reaction to Bruce Willis's A role in the film. Uh, they paid him a kind of a crazy amount of money, and they paid him about five million dollars for that. For that, that's kind of like what your like top tier actors are making at that time. And here's a guy that's coming off of Moonlighting and a couple box office bombs. Like I said, really taking a stake. Like they they would roll the trailer out in in the theaters, and his name would come like Bruce Willis. And they, they were like booing the trailer. They they, they no one could buy into how that wor- looked and worked on screen until they saw the movie. Thank God that people still went to go see it. Uh huh. And if you're up against Sylvester Stallone and Clint Eastwood at the same time, yeah, you held your own pretty well. Boy, I guess so. Mm-hmm. Uh, with established characters, like think about that too. Not only were those established Ram- faces, yeah. those were established characters. Dirty Harry and Rambo. Yep. I think uh, wow. Red Heat came out that same summer. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So yeah, they were they were they were up against a lot there. It's um, 
Yeah, so the uh, negative reaction to the marketing, um, generally well-regarded as one of the finest action films of all time, yeah. one of the best Christmas movies of all time. And I, I'll roll this on at Christmas. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Several video games made of this of varying quality. I've played a few of them. Uh, led to four sequel, Die Hard 2, Die Harder, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Live Free or Die Hard, and A Good Day to, a good day to Die Hard is one of the worst movies mm-hmm. I think I've ever seen. But most of the other sequels are are fairly well-rounded. They're not as solid as this one, but, like, again, you have to suspend your disbelief that the same crazy circumstances can be happening to the same man over and over and over. Right. And I buy it in Die Hard with the Vengeance because it's a brotherly grudge with Simon Gruber, Jeremy Irons, like, really wanting to stick it to McLean for what he did to his family. And, again, that's a robbery, too. Like, it's it's like the National Reserve in that one. Uh, they are talking about doing like a prequel just called John McClane pre this film. I don't think Willis could play it, but like a younger actor could, I don't know. Yeah. Why not? You know, who should play him. Joseph Gordon Levitt should play him. Cause he essentially, they redid his face so he could play him in Looper. Good. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. That'd be interesting. Yeah. I, I checked that out. An interesting film franchise. Let's talk about uh, just some some things. This is gonna be kind of hard, actually. What's your favorite tasting note of Die Hard? <laughs> There's a lot to pick from. We talk a lot about Brian De Palma as being a master of violence. Mm. There's some really good violence bits in this. I specifically pointed out the the moment when he's um after Hans reveals himself and is gonna shoot him. Uh, he and he's hiding below the glass and he shoots through the glass and he shoots that guy in the kneecaps mm-hmm. and the blood squibs just like explode the knee. The 80s era blood squib. Oh, wow. Um, I think I'm going to go with the Carl being hung mm-hmm. from the stair rail scene bit. I think I'm going to go. That's barely. Yeah. It may change if you ask me again. I'm going to go with that right now. That's good. What do you got? I like the roof bit. Like, that's a great piece of action, like, mixed with, like, actual being on the roof and jumping off and, like, a scale model, where, like, when the helicopter blows up. Mm-hmm. up. But I like the smaller moments. I like the, the the human elements of this film. I love that conversation over walkie-talkie with Powell and McLean. I love the end of the film when Powell reclaims... Um, his ability to ju- to do the job and literally save his brother's life at this point. Yeah. This camaraderie that they've created between each other. That's a, it's a very powerful moment that um, kind of wrapping up the film. So I'm going to go that one today. You know, the other one too, that's worth mentioning mm-hmm. is the Ellis and Hans bit too. Yeah. That's super tough to watch. Cause you know that Ellis isn't over his head. Maybe that's more fitting for the, I need to take a shot of the yippee Kaye to cleanse my palate of what I just watched. You can pick that one. I have to pick Atherton going to the family home and doing what he does over there. Oh, now I'm going to say one thing. Mm-hmm. Can you believe Takagi dies as early as he does <laughs> in this? It's brutal. Because that's rough too. Yeah. Yeah, that brain hitting the back of that window. See that? So that might be, oh my God. Um, yeah, that's that, that pre- might be. Oh my god, that's pretty good. I, I think that was three or four. We just came up. Yeah, with. that's yeah. Pick, take your pick at that point. Mm-hmm. Who's the master distiller on Die Hard? Oh wow, it's got to be one of three, right? 
Yeah, well, there's one of a few people involved that make this film really great. Um, Maybe we can kind of piggyback on this one because I kind of have to pick two people. I have to pick Bruce Willis because this is his star-making vehicle. This is the equivalent of Top Gun for Tom Cruise in this regard to launch him into superstardom. But the character's written so well, and Willis's natural charisma and charm that he brings to the role makes the character more well-rounded and more versatile than a lot of 80s action stars. I can't say... I like the Rambo films. I can't say the same about John Rambo and Conan the Barbarian, but, like, McLean just has this extra kind of drive to him. And it'd be totally remiss if I didn't mention Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber. So... Jeb uh, Stewart would be a good nominee here, except it's adapted from a novel, so he didn't have to craft it, although it's really well written. Mm -hmm. I think I am going to go with Rickman. Mm -hmm. I think he just highlights the traits that John McClane has and makes him the better villain, makes the better good guy yeah sure and so i'm gonna go if you go with john mclean i'm gonna go and bruce willis i'm gonna go they with both, Hans gruber and alan rickman they both need each other and because they play off each other so well like the, the film just benefits from that conflict immensely yeah yeah it's a great film how are you gonna rate and grade uh die hard we have rocket which is like your one star well two star call three single barrel four and top shelf is like a five star film it's top shelf it's one of the best I don't know. I can't give you a number. Yeah. Top number of all time, but it's in that top number. And that's a singular number. <laughs> yeah. Like no zero at mm-hmm. the end. So top nine. <laughs> it's an amazing film. Yeah. And again, I will say that it's rewatchable. And every time it comes on, I don't mind sitting down and burning through it again. I've seen this film probably 50 times. It was just enjoyable watching it today as it was the last time I watched it three or four months ago. It never gets old. Um, There's enough action bits that it draws you in and keeps you from, okay, this part's coming to this part to this part predicting, like just letting the film work with you. Mm -hmm. That's a special talent. It's top shelf. Yeah. Yeah, top shelf like plus for me. This is the action film in my opinion. This film is interesting because it comes out the year after Lethal Weapon, and I think that I find those films entirely sim- similar. Oh, yeah. Michael Kamen even composed the music for both of them, so the music cues even sound the same from film to film. Uh, but Lethal Weapon, well, another very smart script, and we'll talk about that one one of these days, is missing some of the humanistic elements that I think Die Hard does effortlessly. Uh and especially in the betrayal of the villain. Mr. Joshua and Hans Gruber, there's no argument <laughs> there. Like, it's right. not even close, really. So, in in a vein where 80s excess and action, and yeah, we, I went on a whole, remember my Predator rant yes. on action films and <laughs> the current state of cinema? Oh, yeah. That was like 20 minutes. Uh <laughs> This is this is the film leading that argument. This is the film that can show you can have remarkable protagonists and intricate and interesting villains in a action film and really blow the hell out of everything, but still, you know, have stakes for your characters, have well thought out character arcs, have it done practically, have it be exciting, be on the edge of your seat. Rising tension, crisis, conflict, resolution. This film checks every box for me. It's the benchmark of every action film, and we're going to talk about that here in the nightcap. 
it's it's the film I think every action film looks up to. Whether you're Fast and the Furious, Mad Max, or John Wick, any of them, you have to look to Die Hard for some inspiration and just raising the glass and saying cheers to. Amen, cheers. Excellent. Let's wrap this thing up with a nightcap. It's going to go. Christmas. I love the inclusion of Ode to Joy in the soundtrack there. That's a that's a great moment in the film too. Yeah. Uh before we get started, kind of just some special shout out to just some people that have reached out to us in the uh as of late. A shout out to to Joey M, uh who found our podcast and has become a, a very, very big fan of ours and threw out a request for a certain Toby Hooper horror film, which don't worry, Joey, that we're, we're working that into the pipeline because that'll be a hell of an episode. We'll be to October soon, Joey, not to make any promises going forward, but we are having a conversation about that right now. And thank you for the really kind words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had an interesting conversation with a friend of mine this week, too, about the podcast. And her name's Alicia. And she wanted to know why we were so hard on Serenity because Firefly was such a good series. And so we need to denote for everybody out there that when we talk about the Serenity that we talk about that is not good, that is not the one that is the spinoff from Firefly or vice versa. I don't remember how that went. We're talking about the film noir, I guess, (laughs) dream sequence that came out. So if we have offended anyone out there who is a fan of Firefly slash Serenity in the science fiction space <laughs> that makes some logical sense, that's a different movie that's, entirely. That's hilarious. I think someone else told me that too. They were like, I thought Serenity was that like sci-fi thing that people generally liked. I was like, no, Serenity's this piece of cinema that I can't even believe is a thing. So to Alicia and Joey, thanks for the feedback and the ears. We'll keep doing our best, and you guys keep tuning in. Sounds good to me. I'm going to plug the podcast pitch and the um, reviews and that real quick. Oh, on yeah, iTunes. yeah, yeah, yeah. If, um, yeah. if you could hit, Email. Us, hit us up on any of the, uh, the podcast sites, leave us a rating and review, particularly Apple Podcasts. That helps with the traction and, you know, just uh, helping more people find the podcast, which I've mentioned before. That's how I find literally every podcast I listen to. We have... Um, some trackable numbers on downloads and some not trackable numbers, depending on what podcast site we use. But um, we passed a pretty big number early recently. You want to throw it out there, Jesse? Yeah, 40,000. That's you all. Yeah. God bless you all to that 40,000 of you. All over the world, wherever you're listening, please do. We do it for you. And we just hope you enjoy the listen along the way. Yeah. Let's wrap up this thing. We kind of set it up earlier, Die Hard being the benchmark of all action films. It literally became such a thing that producers and studios wanted. I want Die Hard again, but like, give me Die Hard on this or Die Hard on that. And that's literally a phrase in Hollywood. This is Die Hard on a bus. This is Die Hard on a mountain. This is Die Hard on an airplane. So we don't have to really list like like your favorite favorite or the top one ever, but let's just have a conversation about the Die Hard on a something subgenre. There's a sentimentality with this movie for you. Oh, which one? Die Hard. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like it had a place that carved its... <laughs> which one? Serenity. Um, no. Yeah. Right? There's a, it's carved out a special place in your film upbringing. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's great. I have one, and this won't be my choice, but I have to mention it because it's literally Die Hard in a skyscraper. Skyscraper. Recently, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the reason is because I watched that with my daughter, mm-hmm. and that is kind of a dad-daughter sort of story. As I've mentioned before, my daughter has a thing for The Rock. Mm-hmm. Um, God, I can only hope to ascend to those lofty heights someday. That movie's not terrible. It's not. Yeah. But she just likes to sit and watch it, like, and it makes her think about dads and daughters. Oh, and wow. That's super sentimental, and I don't want to gag anybody with that. That's actually not my choice, but I have to mention it. But I'll give you an honorable mention, then I'll give you my answer answer. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, Yeah, I'll, I'll throw out another one, too. Oh, let's see. There's so many of them out there. Uh, the one that comes to mind, Die Hard at a Hockey Arena. I'm talking about Sudden Death with Jean-Claude Van Damme. I don't even necessarily know if that's a great film, but like... They're really stretching the bounds of how far they can stretch this concept. Uh, And then another one, uh, Die Hard on an Airplane. That's been done many times. My favorite iteration of that is probably Executive Decision with Kurt Russell. It's come up a couple times today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen that one. Yeah. I'm going to give you Die Hard at a Bank. Oh. Inside Man. Yeah. A great movie with an actor that you despise. <laughs> Inside Man. But by a director that I love. Spike Lee. Spike Lee. Yep. Jodie Foster, Denzel Washington, and Clive Owen. Yep. So I don't want to talk too much about that because there's a lot that I will give away and that movie is worth the watch. That is one of the better endings ever mm-hmm. and how they go about telling that story. Um, I'm not sure in that movie if Clive Owen or Jodie Foster is Hans Gruber. There's a conversation to be had with sure, both that, of that's those. Good, that's good. But I'm going to go with Inside Man. Okay. Do you like that film? Yeah, that one's all right. Okay. Someone ruins it for me, but oh, no, you already mentioned his name. Claude Rains. Give me your t- <laughs> give, <laughs> give me your top your top choice. That's it. I'm going to go Inside Man. Oh, Inside Man. Man. I mean, okay. That, that is my that's I'm going to go with okay, that. Okay, that's today. Yeah, that, that I haven't seen that in forever. Yeah. Got to mention Cliffhanger really quick. I was just going to say Cliffhanger. <laughs> Cliffhanger's wild. Like really wild. That's a crazy movie with like the the money in the mountain, John Lithgow. And yeah, Stallone, Michael Rooker, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that film, Rennie Harlan, who did directed Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, McTiernan didn't come back. He came back for Die Hard uh, with the Vengeance. I have to pick the, the best of all those films and Die Hard on a this or that, whatever. Point Break, Die Hard on a Surfboard. Uh, the best one is Speed. Die Hard on a Bus. That That's a phenomenally well-paced action. Like We talked about the highs and lows of this film and the bombs and then like the, the the feds and this and every element that leads into the next more tension and this and that speed does that and then like on top of like something else plus keanu reeves plus keanu and it's 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 good keanu too it, it it's like he's playing another really good dennis hopper's a terrific bad guy oh yeah the fact that the bus it's a perfect setup the bus can't go below 50 miles an hour or it explodes yeah so we have to do everything in our power to keep it above that in L.A. traffic. In L.A. freeway hell traffic. Th- no, that, that film, I rewatched that recently, kind of when quarantine started a few months ago. Amazing. It's still great. Jeff Daniels is in that, is in that too. Sandra Bullock, one of her like, big, first big roles. We, we'll have to talk about speed one of these days. Maybe not speed two cruise control, Mm-mm. but this one warrants conversation for sure. Sure, yeah, those are great choices. Great choices, yeah. The Die Hard on a something. I don't, I don't, yeah, like the Skyscraper is probably the the last one that came out that I know of. 
Yeah, the diehard at a White House over the Olympus has fallen or White House down. Those had come out too. So the, we haven't had one as of, as of late, but hey, someone's thinking about how to do another one. Oh, it's coming. It'll happen. Yeah, it's like under siege is probably like diehard on, on a, a boat. boat. Yeah, cruise Seagal, ship. Yeah, yeah. I can't do Steven Seagal. That man's a piece of work. I'm with you. It's cheesy. Uh, okay. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. We're wrapping up this cast, staying in one location, uh, and then we're gonna set up the next cast here. So Matt wore a t-shirt last week, and after we finished recording, we just kind of were just shooting the shit as we do, and we kind of got talking about that film and what we could do and then kind of thinking about tenant and tenant's been pushed back some more so it's probably going to be like mid-september by the time we can get to that so we got some time in our hands and it's not quite spooky out there yet but that's coming to last year we did something i thought was very fascinating and i'd like to do more of this on the podcast because you just kind of see a franchise play out in its entirety and you see the highs and lows in real time. We did that with John Wick. We did chapters one, two, and three. And I really thought you saw that series take shape and form and for the pros and cons that we talked about with that with that franchise, which was a lot of fun. I think we're going to do that again, but we're going to kick it up a notch here. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned this film and this franchise a lot, but I think we're going to do it the most justice that I think any film podcast has ever done for this franchise because of how we're going to talk about it in such a positive, for the most part, light. Yeah. And it's the Rocky franchise. So we're going to do Rocky's one, two, three, four, five, and Rocky Balboa. Depending on how that plays, there may be some space in there for Creed <laughs> entry as well. We should save the Creed for the Creed inevitable Creed three that's in development. Okay. And do like a cask for that one. Okay. But we're gonna have our work cut out for us tackling six films. So we're gonna stay in the Rocky space for a while, but what a franchise. We had to talk about Stallone, how he came to write this, just the and the the story arc of Rocky Balboa is it's one of the best in cinema, and I don't think people give it a whole lot of credit because when I say Rocky, you first, A, think of Stallone and what an idiot, which is not true. No. You think of B, Rocky Bull, oh, this is stupid. Like, what does he fight? Like, like this Russian guy and this, and that's stupid. That's not true either. No. There's such a gravitas and an emotionality to his character and that story. Um, and you- I would venture that as much as that story is about boxing, you and I will spend... As much, if not more, time talking about what's not boxing mm-hmm. in that film. Yeah. The characters, the relationships. Yes. I'm excited. We are in the annals of film Hall of Fame for characters here. Like, next to Darth Vader and Harry Potter is Rocky. And this is fitting because we, we haven't really done, like, a sports film. We haven't. Before, so this kind of fits that wheelhouse. But we've mentioned, I think, before how, like... Rocky has the ability to like take us to emotional levels that most films dare not go with me. Yeah. There's a handful. Mm-hmm. Rocky has like three fifths of that handle I, for me. So I, know I, don't, I don't know how this is going to go. You might see a first for Rice Smile films. It might get emotional at times. I'm willing to go there with you. Yeah, okay. That yeah. film mattered a lot to that series has mattered a lot to me. And if that happens and there's, we're, for me, mm-hmm. in this cask, we're going to talk about what arguably might be my favorite scene in all of film history. We might talk about it. it, it might, well, we will talk about it because I won't have it any other way. Yeah. But it might be my number one. Interesting. But it won't be in week one. Yeah. I'm excited. This, this, this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Excellent. To that. To that. Uh, 
Cheers. Thank you again for the listens and downloads. Hit us up on any of the social media platforms. Leave us brightsmileproductions at gmail.com. We love the comments. We love the feedback that just helps us get better and helps us, gives us ideas of what to talk about next. Yeah, we want you to shape where we go a little bit. And we are more than open to that, especially in times like this. <laughs> it's times like these. We yeah. need your film recommendations. Dave Grohl here at the podcast with me. Oh, I, God bless Man, that'd you. be heaven <laughs> no kidding that would be heaven excellent matt cheers i gotta get going i gotta get going i gotta go um clean that halloween costume of mine because i think i'm gonna bring it out of the closet so i can wear that again and be the true john mcclain that i can be i'll make you a deal okay you rock the john mcclain costume and i will rock the holly Gennaro costume <laughs> Plunging neckline included. And yeah, you could pull off that, 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 that. We'll have to find a wig for you. Okay. Excellent. I'll do it. We'll see you next week. Everybody have a great week. Thanks for yours, and we will see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Bry Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Die Hard is property of 20th Century Fox, Silver Pictures, and The Gordon Company, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. What was it you said to me before? Yippee Kaye, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs>